0: And our politics lead a party for the Trump Party. Today, the conference that takes the temperature on the future of the GOP's activist base featured a golden Trump statue.
1: They say ignorance is bliss, but when it comes to Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, ignorance is hateful and dangerous. Why did you
2: put up that sign outside your office? Because we have to trust the science, Colin. You know me, I'm a science person. I love science. I'm always talking
3: science.
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Progressive Southern Theologians podcast, the show where two progressive theologians working in the South gather and discuss matters of faith, politics, and other social issues. I'm Mark Boswell, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Jamie McLeod. Jamie, welcome in today. How are things for you?
1: Well, Mark, I'm excited. Anytime we get a chance to have a little Garrett family reunion, it's a a good day. So this is going to be a good show. I'm looking forward to it.
2: (laughs) That's right. Today, dear listeners, you get not two but three progressive voices coming your way as we are very privileged to be joined by the Reverend Dr. Yuki Schwartz, a wonderful scholar, theologian, friend, ordained minister, organizer, and all-around good person. Yuki, welcome to the show. How are things for you on the
0: West Coast? Uh, Things are good. We're having a rare sunny day. And in the middle of winter. So it's a nice day, nice time here.
2: Excellent, excellent. Dear listeners, in our first segment today, you'll have a chance to get to know Yuki a bit better and learn all about the amazing work that she's doing as it's related to theology, the church, politics, and other social concerns. In our second segment, Yuki will stick around as we discuss her reactions to the political transitions, that's calling it very nicely, that we have lived through in the past few months, and also some current political events from the week. As always, we'll bless someone's heart between our first and second segments, and we'll close out our show with our regular front porch musings. Before we begin today, though, we'd like to ask that if you enjoy this podcast, to please rank and subscribe to the show in your podcast app of choice. And if you want to read more of our written work, please visit our website, ProgressiveSouthernTheologians.com, and also check us out on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you all for being with us this week. Yuki, I mean this sincerely. What a joy it is for you to join us on the show today. I will demystify some of the history here, as Jamie's alluded to already, and let our listeners know that uh, Jamie and I have known Yuki for about 11 years. The three of us completed our PhDs together in theology from Garrett Theological Seminary and grueling experience that such a thing is. It's always nice when folks like you, Yuki, are generous enough and find it rewarding to do collegial things like this together. So again, thank you so much. And thank you for being here. Yuki, could you start us out today by sharing as much as you'd like to share about what's going on in your career right now. There have been some exciting things happening. Where are you? What are you up to? What hats do you
0: wear? Um, so right now I am the, a, an assistant professor of constructive and political theologies and a Louisville Institute postdoctoral scholar at Claremont School of Theologies at Willamette University in Salem, Oregon. And so I am teaching uh, constructive Christian theologies. I'm teaching about justice. I'm really excited to be putting together um, some classes about Asian American and Asian theolo- theologies. Um, I'm doing some research into the Asian American movements and the intersectionalities with um, other uh, anti-racist movements, uh, people's liberation movements in the United States and transnationally, and yeah, um, uh, that's pretty much what I'm doing right now. I was uh, pastoring, or I I was part of a pastoring team at a church in Seattle called Keystone United Church of Christ, Mm -hmm. i really loved being there because i learned so much there about um, west coast people's movements west coast politics Mm -hmm. and the seattle area which is you know like chicago like so chicago seattle is one of those areas where you couldn't go too far without hitting a people's organization a neighborhood community organization uh, people doing the work to change um, their worlds around them and so i was really grateful to be part of that for a while. And I still live in the Puget Sound area when I'm not in Salem. So. So, yeah, it's nice to have this uh, time in the West Coast.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Jamie, that sounds to me a little bit like the environment of Birmingham, Alabama, does it not? Yeah, it's, it's a bit like that. <laughs> <laughs> we're joking. We're joking. Obviously, no, that's great. Uh, <laughs> um, Yuki, would you tell, I think a lot of our listeners would vibe with and are probably already um, enjoying reaping the benefits of constructive theology, but they may not know that term. Um, how would you describe what constructive theology is?
0: So constructive theology is a movement and a method of doing theology that mm-hmm. pays close attention to the to the how of theology as much as the why of theology. And part of that how is uh, making sure or uh, being open and in front that your theology is embedded and comes out of it, grows out of the world that you're living in. And there's also a, a necessary uh, focus on justice, on justice, prophetic, uh, prophetic proclamation, lamentation, because you're recognizing that our world, that we make our worlds together and what we say and what we do um, about, about God or, or, I love Dorothy Zole's definition of theology, where she says that it's it's uh, it's talking or, or learning about um, humanity's relationship with something like God. <laughs> right, um, right, right, right. Um, but yeah, knowing that we we are we make our worlds. Human beings make our worlds in relationship with one another and and the world. Um, theology is deeply a part of that. So how are we? Uh, making our worlds together, and so for me, that is what constructive theology is. It's attention to the process of how you are um, creating your theology, with attention to what is going on in the world around you, and knowing that um, your theology is going to change as your world mm. changes, as you learn more about your world. You're not making a, you know, a a proclamation that's going to stand for all time for all people, but you're saying this is where we understand. Um, our relationship with God or something like God to be right now in this place and time.
2: Yuki, that strikes me, one one particular thing you stated a moment ago, um, that justice tends to be at the heart of this as well. Now, I grew up a Baptist in the South, and I don't quite know what you're talking about in terms of... um... (laughs) 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 I'm joking, of course. how have you seen? Uh, I, we'll save that. We'll save that for later because that, that's going to that's gonna come up with some questions we have uh, coming down the line in a minute. Uh, for now, though, let's stroll back down memory lane uh, just for a moment and think back to our Garrett days together. So on the on the professional side of things, um, will you share with us what led you to be interested one in theology and two then to seek out uh, advanced degrees in the subject and, and a career in
0: this? How did all that come together for you? Um I grew up I'm laughing when you're saying you're a grew up Baptist and you don't know what justice is, because I grew up in the South Roman Catholic, so (laughs) I didn't you know, even (laughs) less of an idea. Um of course my joke is always like in the South there's like strands of of of, uh of Southern Baptist in every religion, no matter what you are, just because that's that's the culture. That's right. Um and so I grew up uh, not really understanding that I had any power in the world. I didn't understand about community. I mean, I'm child of an immigrant um, who really looked toward assimilation as a survival tactic, and so it's it's assimilating into whiteness, and and that means assimilating into white supremacy. And so that's this, this you know ways of being around individualism um, about personal responsibility, and so that was my life for. Oh, you know, most of my young life, and then I initially went to school to be a journalist, mm-hmm. and I was a reporter in Oklahoma for a few years. And one of the I think the the day that I really understood my politics changing was, I was doing reporting about the time when the the welfare bill was in Congress and in in the national news. So this is like early mid to late nineties. And they my editor sent me out and said, "Go find some people who are on welfare and talk to them." with the idea of saying, you know behind that is all, go find some quote unquote welfare queens. We need to show mm. them that they how they abuse the system. And I went out for days, and all I found are people who said, um, this was something that helped me. <laughs> I needed this because of these specific circumstances. And um, I was able to get off it, or if I couldn't get off it, it was because of these specific circumstances. And it was just all people. It was just all people. And I started going, hey, wait a minute, maybe I didn't understand this the way that I thought I did. And so that experience of really just meeting people and finding the people that had been in the news and in conversations in my area were just stereotypes. Uh, Being able to talk to them and go, hey, this is another, this is, this is their, this is these are policies and these are programs that are meant to take care of people. And then I started learning even more about, about different benefit systems um, that we have in the United States and why so many people, for example, um, where I would see a lot of, of elderly women who were, um, who were in need of welfare. And part of that was because they didn't work when they were younger. They, didn't, they weren't able to pay into pensions, they couldn't pay into social security. Um, they could get their husband's social security, you know, or their partner's social security because for whatever reason. And so just l- knowing these larger um, systems that were at work and I didn't have language for it at the time, but that was what started me on this path. And then um, I ended up in seminary by accident um, and <laughs> invitation, <laughs> 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 which basically was I was, I went back to school. I met somebody on a on a I, I met a man named opio torre who was a lawmaker in oklahoma and he was five seconds from retirement um, but he would he had been called to be a minister at his retirement and so um he was going to phillips theological seminary to get his master of divinity degree and i ended up going on this travel abroad trip um, but it was students and then like community leaders and he and i just got along immediately. Opio was the kind of person where you go, that's who I want to be when I grow up, because he was just one of the best people I'd ever met in my life. He was one of those lawmakers who was really trying to do bipartisan work for the best things, like trying to end the death penalty in in Oklahoma and, you know, looking for justice. And, and at one point in one of our conversations, he just said, You're going to seminary. Hmm. And I went seminary in Oklahoma. No, I'm not going to do that. But when we got back, they called me, and so I ended up at seminary. And while I was in seminary, like one of my first semesters, I went on a another travel abroad trip to uh, with the Border Links program, and I learned more about the systems of immigration and how those systems had been twisted in order to serve corporate interests and you know national security interests and not people's interests. And so mm-hmm. that was really what got me into um, being able to understand myself as a progressive and and to start leaning that way. And when I went to seminary initially, I was going to do Bible because I think I had that 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 fallacy in my head that that's the important part about religion.
2: the the southern baptist culture coming through again
0: (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. and then the theology is like just all about people telling you what to do and it was only through um encountering liberation theology um uh, black liberation theology asian american liberation theologies uh, feminist theology womanist theology theology, queer theology that i started to understand that no theology are I mean, theology to me plays two roles. It helps us understand, and it creates language and gives us frameworks for mm-hmm. understanding this relationship that we have with something like God. But it's also an ordering system it's a political ordering system, it's a personal ordering system where we make sense of the world in specific ways mm-hmm. through this relationship. And so knowing that has helped me um, understand my faith, for lack of a better word you know, who I am in the world as I go through and understand uh, with God being important to me and, uh, but also how the world, how the world is why it is, you know, it has these theological bases that we don't really see, um, but it helps me to, to know, uh, you know, what, you know, the, how they're at work and why they're there. And so, yeah, theology was this in its usual form where we just think about creeds and doctrines. Mm-hmm. I never would have been a theologian if, I had to stick with that.
2: (laughs) Right, right, right. But
0: then seeing that it was addressing things that were actually, you know, important to me in my life. I mean, one of the most powerful um, theologies, first theologies that really drew me into it was, um, it was a book on um, U.S. uh, theologies of liberation. And it was on Asian American liberation theologies. And it was centered, this theology was centered on the question of where are you really from? which is something that uh, people of Asian American Pacific Islander descent get asked a lot because we're not seen as belonging here. So it doesn't matter how long you've been in this country, whether it's, you know, you immigrated 50 years ago or you've been here for five generations, it's, well, where are you from? No, where are you really from? Because you don't really belong here. And to do theology around that particular soul wound for me was, you know, I'm like crying in the middle of the AAR book "Born" because that's where I found this book, but it spoke to me, and it made me see that theology mean, theology means something.
2: So some people have similar experiences, and they say, "Let me out of seminary. Let me go get into the church and and do the work." And you and, and people could do more than one thing at one time, right? Certainly. Um, but somewhere along the way, you said, I want to keep doing this work and I want to go do this in a PhD program, which I think is great because obviously we've made similar decisions and uh, we love this stuff. So what led you to make that uh, career choice as well?
0: I had a, a couple of teachers in my undergrad who, who told me early on in my degrees that um Have you thought about doing doctoral work? (laughs) Because they said you you asked the right questions, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know I'm 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 from a working class background. I'm the first person, and really the only person in my nuclear family, to go to college. Mm -hmm. You know, much less now I have PhD. So this wasn't even on my radar, Mm -hmm. and so that's Mm -hmm. when I started thinking about it. And you know, at the end of the day, it suits me because I'm a big nerd.
3: <laughs> I like
0: to think about these things I like to read I like to you know I, i'm a I'm a reader, I'm a thinker, so it helps yeah. that but um I don't know i it it is kind of like the church where I kind of go i i if I had been up to me, I wouldn't have done it, <laughs> but obviously it was there are there are other things at work that kept opening the right doors for me, and all I had to do was say yes yeah. and I did.
2: I would say here, too, that um, something that was impressed upon me at Garrett um, through several professors was that this work we were doing in our Ph.D. program is a former ministry also, you know, not to think of it as just academy versus church like that's that's not the way we I think that we were um, socialized into thinking about our, our doctoral work um, in our Garrett days, too. And I appreciated that. Um, Jamie, I don't know that we've talked about this with you before either. What specifically about the Ph.D option what when did you wake up one day and say that's what i want to do
1: probably midway through my first year in seminary i was reading oh i don't know tillick somewhere and something clicked for me and i went in and had a conversation with uh, our our future doctoral advisor stephen ray and i was asking him something about it and he suggested to me that i look into going into doctoral work and that was so far out of the realm of anything I had thought of before that it it didn't take, at least for the first couple times he said anything. Um, and it probably wasn't until midway through my second year, after I deconstructed everything down to the ground, I was trying to rebuild it back up, that, uh, that I felt much more comfortable asking the questions and doing the reading and doing the... The, the, the contemplation. Then I did sort of the practical aspects of it. In fact, I was joking about this earlier today. Uh, I tended to skip classes that were uh, practically based. You could find me out on the golf course those days, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I and, and I'd be there for for my you know my Stephen Ray classes and my my scripture classes because I was interested in the contemplation piece, not so much in the in the practical aspects of it. And so it was you know, by the time I got done with my second year, I decided that's what I wanted to do. I started having conversations with other professors, sort of taking their advice as I went along the way. I ended up staying at Louisville for another year after my MDiv to finish a second master's. Uh, Cause I felt like I hadn't, it, what you realize when you're in your doctoral program is there's no reading enough. Like you never read enough that you're you're done mm-hmm. reading. But I felt <laughs> like after my MDiv, I just hadn't read enough. Like I wasn't up enough on, on Sort of the theological trends, and so I spent a year just doing that. And it was at that point that I started applying to doctoral programs, and the rest is history.
2: Gotcha, gotcha. I was, yeah, I was. Um, I won't go into the full story here, but what I will say, I'll, your comment on the practical classes, um, and this is to not devalue them at all, but it was just to show where my energy was. No, no, wasn't. no, no. It's, to be sure, and I know yes, you're not uh, either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but yeah, yeah. No, I didn't take it that way. Um, but I too, I was, I was very interested in going the. Um, the, the, the academic route or the academic study of theology. And, uh, my professors at Union Seminary in Richmond made fun of me because I was in my third year and I was taking all of the practical courses for the, <laughs> which is what a lot of first, like, you know, it's the preaching and worship and the pastoral care and the Christian ed. And my professors would just give me hell about it. And they're like, you're a third year student. Why are you just now taking my class? And I was like, uh, you know, <laughs> I got a, i yeah. got other things on the horizon here
0: yeah. yeah same and and i mean and what 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 was the thing that made me switch from like bible to theology was like i was in my last year and you know all of my electives were theology classes and i'd taken like the basic required <laughs> bible classes and finally um you know, and joe who was my professor at phillips before she became my advisor at garrett she went you should consider theology instead come do theology because that's where obviously what you're interested in and and yeah i'm i'm grateful for the practical classes um, so much because you know as mark as you were saying that so much of teaching and and is is teaching is a ministry and there are, pre- there are little practical bits that i learned from the practical classes that are helpful in the teaching aspects of it but But yeah, if I had my if I had my choice, hardcore theology all the way, all the impractical theology, please. (laughs) Um, I actually had a
1: question about that. Can I jump in, Mark? Yeah, absolutely. You you talked about uh, being on a on a ministerial team. It sounded like how do we because I'm a pastor now too, right? How do we bridge the gap between right those impractical theologies or those theologies that talk about queer liberation? asian liberation uh, black liberation how do we bridge the gap between those thinkers and your sort of typical moderate mostly white say mainline parishioner like what does that look like or is it possible
0: you know it's i am a big proponent and understandably so of And it sounds trite, but it's true that you meet people where you, where they are. And so much of academic life and academic work is just finding language for things that people are doing every day. Um, Like intersectionality is real. People have been doing intersectionality for Mm -hmm. centuries before Kimberly Crenshaw gave it a formal academic name that we're using. And then people go, oh, intersectionality is just something that comes from the ivory tower. No, these are things... That people do every day, and if you want to do like justice ministry, you have to be intersectional in your area. Your folks are going to have to um, pay attention to the ways in which because re- intersectionality is about the relationships and being aware of um, how your relationships come together, how you're doing the work, who's got the mic, who's uh, making decisions, and and so part of it is a language issue. Part of it's a translation issue. Um, so, how do we manage to talk to folks using a language that they have about the things that they're doing or the things that they want to do? And then we can bring in these, the frameworks from academia, um, knowing that it's, I mean, it's just, it's language. It's, it's dialect.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and I've said, I, maybe a bit naively or too anecdotally, but I've, I've had experiences even with, with folks in the South that if, and I'm, I'm speaking very generally here uh, and on purpose, but um, some folks who we may assume are more conservative or actually are more conservative, that there are still things that they are interested in, but because of the religious culture, that permeates the South, there are so many, and this is true across the United States too, and it's speaking to the influence of evangelical Christianity upon our, our the, the culture in our whole society, there are still, I know that there are people out there who have questions and interests in things related to theology, religion, and the church and public life, but they truly don't have a model and they have not heard it spoken about in that language before. And <clears throat> I was talking just a, a couple days ago to a guy who's Left the church a long time ago, very radical, far left, socialist identifying guy. And he asked me some basic question about the church of theology. And he was shocked when I gave a like just a, like a simple, more liberal kind of answer to it. He was like, I didn't think that was possible. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> da. I'm like let me introduce you to the mainline church or to like, yeah, it wasn't right. anything like super progressive, <laughs> you know, but, but that cast still frames the way that, so even if the people have left the church, they still don't, they, they then don't necessarily know. Uh, but there are a lot of people still within the church too, um, who would, my experience has been would be open to some things. And I'm not saying that's going to be a radical transformation overnight, but they have just, they have still yet to encounter religious authorities or people that they would grant authority to, um, that they would then ever expect or know to to engage them on those types of things. Um, and so that there's sometimes some some cracks you know under the veneer there. Uh, Yuki, this I, I want to ask you this question next because and we, we we're talking all about it right now, but something that has always and I, I have this memory about you going back 11 years ago when we first met i was in a place at that time (laughs) it's true it's true this is gonna be great Uh, you can tell (laughs) Uh, no well so at, at the time i was i was i still needed to deconstruct a lot of my fundamentalist upbringing more than i even i thought i had been doing that for a number of years i was still in the middle of doing it apparently um and it affected the way still that i looked at the church church capital c and my involvement in it um, and I think that I, I was identifying with the academy side of theology as a way to not have to deal with the church because it had just, it, had, it burned me. I, there were so many things I was still trying to work through and process, but I, my memory of you is that you were always one to continue to value in, in what, in Garrett is a, a relatively a fairly, you know, liberal or left leaning, um, seminary environment, you always maintained a sense of, of the value of the, of local congregations and churches um, now to folks who weren't part of that world, that may sound like an obvious thing, but it's not to a lot of us because the church is, you know, like it has, has just not always gone well. So I don't know how you, that was 11 years ago, but I, but you have worked in congregations you were sharing with us a moment ago. And so could you tell us a little more about what that has been like for you to, to how you processed your relationship to the church in light of some of the, the, the challenges and frustrations that come
0: with doing that kind of work? I think it helps. I think it helps that um, I moved to this, you know, I grew up Roman Catholic in the South um, and a very old school uh, German Catholic church that was cranky about Vatican II. So, um, I mean, I was, I didn't even know that I could like eat meat on Fridays on any day um, until I was well into my 20s. Um, that's how like hardcore because they changed it so you only had to do that during Lent and my church went no we're going to do it the old school style and never eat meat on Fridays anyway uh, so coming into Protestantism I, I changed this entire system and then I immediately ended up in like the most you know like liberal denomination that, that's out there that we have in the United States and well it's not it's not the most liberals but it's like one of them it's like the big at the time Um, It was, it was very on everybody's radar that way. Um, And, but I didn't come out, I I didn't come out of um, an evangelical background. I didn't come out of a fundamentalist background. Um, I was pretty agnostic. And to a certain extent, I still am, if you're going with the whole belief, you know, aspect Mm -hmm. of religion. But what, what I tell you, what really made me value this was when I was on that border links trip and we were talking everywhere we went. And I think they did this because we were a seminary group. So they thought we'd want to talk to, you know, faith-based organizers. And they were they were right. But everywhere we went, we were talking to people who were doing this work of trying to change this demonic immigration system that we have, whether it was in on the Mexican side of the border, on the U.S. side of the border. Um, they were all faith people of faith. And one of them, she was a nun um named sister lil and sister lil just kind of said the church is one of the biggest organizations that we have it's it's got global reach we have this global network this global relationships of people and if we could all get us together to be doing work together um what changes could we be making in the world that that the church church the church quote unquote uh, (laughs) but churches could be doing the work for the good instead of in tandem with colonization and imperialism as they've done. Um, but that's, I mean, at the heart of it, that's true. It's its a community. Church is a community. Church is a, um, a network. It's relationships. It's a way of valuing, um, you know, being upfront about who we value and how we understand what to value. Um, and it's also, I mean, for as far as doing like the work of advocacy, or the work of organization, you have a community right there, uh, where we're going to be talking about the things, the world, the world that we are being called to co-create. And so, if you can harness that, and you can bring in strategies and and tactics, and and you know, we are a we are Christianity in particular. We are a religion about waiting, right? We are a waiting, <laughs> and so. Um, there is a certain sense where we should be able to um, understand the lengthy process it takes to bring justice about in even the smallest ways, but then to continue to do that work. And so that's where I've been lucky enough where I have always been a part of um, justice-seeking congregations. Some of them like way out there, you know, radical, uh, doing the work, pastors getting arrested every other week. Not that being arrested is your sign of being a, you know, authentic radical or anything, but but, uh, but really, there's never been any the churches that I've been a part of since becoming a member of the United Church of Christ. They've always been centered on how do we actually live out this gospel. Yeah. And, yes. and coming into Chicago where there's a community organization everywhere and all mm-hmm. the churches that I was part of were deeply involved in their community orga- organizing and neighborhood community organizing groups. Um, that was essential for me.
2: You could, that's a great, um, encouraging, good note um, for us to wind down this first segment. I've got a few more questions here that we're, um, I'll, I'll bring over into our next segment because they'll relate to some of the political things we're going to talk about. Uh, but thank you for sharing uh, with us this morning on that front. And at this point, we will uh, we'll, we'll, um, mosey on over to our next segment. Jamie, Yuki, we're moving along now to our bless their hearts portion of the show in which we muster all of our southern passive aggressiveness and bless the heart of somebody who has recently appeared in a less than favorable light. Yuki, we also reserve the right to bless someone in a in a positive way if they have done something, uh, you know, because bless their heart goes both ways. It it just tends to be more on the passive aggressive side. So we reserve (laughs) that right. Uh, Jamie, whose heart are you blessing today and why?
1: Mark, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day, and I said, uh, I, "This year, I can't even bring myself to watch CPAC, like the Conservative Political Action Committee <laughs> conferences. It goes on every year about this time." And I said, "You know, do you I, most I, years, Jamie? I, I do. I do. I, I follow pretty closely. <laughs> Look, I like, I like, I like dabbling in the crazy. So, you know, somebody has to keep yeah. up with it. Anyways, so right. this year, I was saying, I, 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 I cannot. I, I just cannot give any of my time over to it. I'm not listening to Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz, or certainly not the big orange one Uh, but and and then i saw a story the other day of the golden trump and so i just want to say and if you have not seen this this is wonderful it is a caricature of itself at this point it is a a golden statue of of donald trump being wheeled in with uh him wearing rocky balboa pants and flip-flops uh anyways (laughs) so i i want to uh I want to bless the hearts of all those who came up with that concept and, and, and created it and brought it to life because never before have I seen the movie, the 10 commandments reenacted so well as when they were rolling the golden Donald Trump down the hallway at CPAC. So I want to say bless, bless their hearts to all those who made that, that wonderful moment happen.
2: <laughs> bless their hearts. Indeed. You can, are you blessing anyone's heart today?
0: Oh, I'm, I bless Joe Biden's heart every day. <laughs> Fifteen dollar minimum wage? Oh, that's too hard. We can't. We can, we we couldn't get it on our first try. Let's like just not worry about that. <laughs> Detention centers. Oh man, I knew I said I was going to do something about that, but I'll I'll make them I'll make them shorter. I'll make the time shorter. But we still got to have them, yeah. Bless Joe's heart.
2: Bless, bless it indeed. Um, I'm going to bless. So I'm, 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 I'm taking the positive route this week. Um, I don't always, I don't know. Yeah, I don't have to do that, but I'm going <laughs> to no. do it this week. Um, so in light of, well, I guess on the one hand, I didn't know if any of you all were going to be blessing the hearts of some of the um, legislators that have been coming out across the country um, in favor of these. Uh, there's been a, a, a rash of anti-transgender bills and and, and along with those uh, have been some extraordinarily stupid statements made by proponents of those things. So I, I wasn't sure if, 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 uh, if any of y'all were going that way. So I'm going to take the positive route here, not because I think the high road is always better, but... Um, <laughs> There is a, J, Jamie has heard this before. I'm going to bring it up again because it overlapped with this week. Um, you I'm a big fan of professional wrestling and <laughs> it is, it is a, uh, it is a passion. It used to be a guilty passion of mine. Now it's just a passion of mine. Cause I don't need to feel bad about it. Um, <laughs> there's a there's a newer of course there's the wwe which has been around for 35 or 40 years that's sort of the one that everybody knows about um its competition went down the drain about 20 years ago but in the last couple of years a new organization has come about a new promotion and uh they are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination but they are much more um framing themselves not in an obnoxious way but as the more uh progressive of they they are they their organizers are people who also care about certain social issues i'll just say it like that they're there and one of the um, wrestlers that they have signed is a transgender woman who is of native american descent and she and the company do not use her identity in a marketing way but she is just proudly who she is and if you know who she is and about her story, then you know that. But otherwise, anyway, so she wrestled this week and she won. And of course it's fake, y'all. We know that. And it's scripted and all this stuff. But in the midst of all of this happening in the state legislatures, to see Nyla, Nyla Rose is her name, to see Nyla come out um, and to have her match and just to be able to be who she is fully in a wrestling promotion of all things. Like I just, I I like to celebrate this group, um, when I can, and when I get a chance to, so I'm blessing the hearts of AEW, their promoters, and Nyla Rose for just quietly doing the good work that they do, um, and doing it in a, in a in a in a very nice way. So. On that note, y'all, uh, we'll wrap up the segment. Uh, listeners, uh, please remember that if you ever have suggestions for whose hearts we should bless, feel free to let us know on Facebook or Twitter. There's a lot of dumb things happening out in the world, and you should feel free to let us know if you uh, hear about those things or want us to discuss it. All right, Yuki and Jamie, in our second segment, we want to revisit the regular theme of what in the world has happened to our country over the past several years. Uh, what do we do about it and how might the future look? We have, we, Jamie and I have discussed this often amongst ourselves, but also with a lot of guests who have been on too. And so, um, Yuki, part of my processing of the trauma of the Trump era is to ask others how they're making sense of everything. Uh, so let's start there. Um, how do you look back over the answer this, however you would like, but how do you look back over the last four years and make sense of how it was that we even came to have Donald Trump for a president and what that's meant? for us as a country
0: i don't know that i make sense of it (laughs) i mean it's (laughs) it's the i I read a great um quote uh, from octavia butler not too long ago and so for those hopefully folks are aware who octavia butler is wonderful african-american uh woman science fiction writer um who wrote a book called parable of the sower followed up by Parable of the Talents, and it got notable during the Trump era because the the nov- these novels are about like catastrophic climate change, uh, political upheaval, um, uh, and about a community that's trying to survive amidst all this. And part of, there was a character in there who was running for president and his slogan was make America great. And so everyone went, oh my gosh, look, here's here's this parallel. And so much in these novels parallel with things we see, and so. But these books are written in the, I think, the '90s, um, okay. and somebody had asked her, "How do you, um, how do you come up with your ideas for your dystopian future?" And she said, "I pay attention to what's going on right now, the problems that we're having in the world, and then just imagine what will happen if we don't fix it." And so that's yeah. kind of what I imagine when I think about um, Trump coming into the world because it's it was never just him. It was this colliding of all these different policies because you look I mean, I always go back to 1994, not only because that was like when I was getting my political awareness on um, as a young person, but you're looking on as the Republican takeover of the House term limits start to go Um start to go away this is the rise of uh, newer media whether it's the am talk radio and also fox news and i mean they have been around for a while but they're really starting to find their stride and deregulation is a lot of part of this the um fairness rules kind of go by the wayside where you can say whatever you want without you know their their slogan being we're fair and balanced but they're not being fair and balanced and we know that and so you know it's the long game and that's what the right has always been really good at—is they play the long game. I mean, they took the whole "we're going to wander in the desert for 40 years and come out on the other side." They take that seriously, and and liberals don't. <laughs> Progressives do not, because we want action right now. But yeah, I look at, I look back on that and think of here are all the problems that we had there that never got addressed and just got worse, and then here we are—we end up with literally a reality star who treated, who treated the office like a rating scheme mm-hmm. and, and used human lives and human blood as a way to do it, to oil that machine mm-hmm. in the most evil and demonic ways I can think of. And so, and so, yeah, it's it wasn't him, but he it was the system that just kept opening it, itself up to more privatization, more deregulation, more corporate control that led us to have that person in this position who fundamentally did not understand the norms of government <laughs> at all, the the culture of politics, and really exposed how much of our politics is based on um, agreement and not policy.
1: <laughs> oh yes, yes, we've talked about that a lot on the show. Actually, that's been sort of exposed over the past four years. How much is just a, a, for lack of a better word, a gentleman's agreement between mostly gentlemen uh, that has now gotten annihilated because we didn't have a gentleman in the office anymore right
0: right right, yeah. right that's right and when and when you think about so much of the evils in our society that get exposed they come out of these same agreements because i mean white supremacy is the biggest gentleman's agreement of them all that's right so that's right so
2: yeah i um also i, I tend to think about the the the, the myth of, of liberal enlightenment and just the the inevitable progression of of things morally getting better in the world um and so some of the shock around trump's election is genuine for sure back in 2016 and then some of it does reveal that sense again so when we think back you know to what happened in 2008 and the the election of barack obama to the white house and i was let's see a young i was young uh ish at that time so that's also the time i was starting to pay more attention to politics was around 2006 2008. And uh, and there was this, this sense um, that people, that some people at least, uh, very much hoped was true that things were just going to keep getting better. Although we saw, even then, uh, we saw the, the reactions that were starting to build through the white supremacist um, <laughs> intuitions and, and feelings of many people in a more vulgar, explicit sense to this breach of the gentleman's agreement and the white supremacist gentleman's agreement by just by virtue of just having an african-american person in the white house and uh all I'll, you know, the gloves have always um you know can come off but we definitely saw them come off in a very specific way um, leading up to that now yuki this uh i wanted to circle back to a question i had um wanted to ask you in the, the first segment and it does relate somehow to um i'm thinking it does to the ways that we have responded to Trump. Uh, It's your dissertation topic that I wanted to talk about and work that you have done around shame. And I know enough to know that I don't know a lot about your topic. And you're the expert there and how it relates to social political concerns. And not everyone might think of shame as being related to social and political topics. So, would you tell us? Imagine I'm a third grader because that's how I feel most days. How did that topic come about? What What are What do you think about when you engage it? And what are What connections have you seen? Have you written about? Thought about in relation to some of the? It doesn't have to be about Trump, but just the political world in which we live.
0: It's funny because it, you know, I there, it is about Trump, and I mean it's not about Trump, but so much of the Trump era was about. Um, about his shame and his shamelessness. Shamelessness, is, yeah. Because um, I mean, this is something that I said right after you got elected. Is it doesn't matter. I don't care what your your political background is or your political beliefs are. Um, there is you can't look at Trump without seeing a person who has who seemingly has no sense of shame whatsoever. Mm-hmm. The things mm-hmm. that he says, the things that he does. I mean, he seems like bulletproof to shame, um, and yet. Uh, I saw a great, like right at the beginning of his tenure, I saw a great frontline documentary on on him. And they pinpointed uh, the White House correspondence dinner while Barack Obama, it might have been um, 2010, 2011. No, 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 no. It was later than that. It was right, it was the thing that got him started on the whole birther issue, mm, mm. where Barack Obama like gently humiliated him. And during that dinner and several people were talking about how, and that's when he, that's when his political uh, career started really was he was going to, he could not handle being poked fun of by a black man um, in this position. And so he was going to take that. And we see, you know, we, we saw how often his entire administration, his entire tenure was about undoing everything that Barack Obama did. Um, and so my dissertation topic uh, was, I looked at, I was looking at shame. Um, I've had a lot of shame in my life because I am a person of color. I'm Japanese American. I am, you know, a signed female at birth person. Um, and so I experience. I mean, there's like, my life is just in all sorts of shames. I also have family secrets. Um, weird family dynamics. I mean, stuff I'm learning about my family. They're just coming out. It's like, this would have been so helpful had you told me, but you didn't tell me because you had all this shame about it. And so shame is always like this really prevalent part in a lot of people's lives. Um, and it, I remember when I started investigating about it and people would say, what is your dissertation? The dreaded, what is your dissertation, you read, is your dissertation mm-hmm. about? Yeah. Question.
2: I'll do it to you again today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: but, but she's done say, now, oh, a, so she can talk about finished. it She's yeah, finished. That's right. I'm done.
0: <laughs> but I would say, well, it's about shame. And, and I would get two responses. And, and, and one response would be if someone go saying, they would tell me about all the experiences of shame that they would have in their lives. Um, mm-hmm. And on the other one, which always shocked me, these people would go, good, we need more shame in our society. And I would go, where are you that you think you need more shame? <laughs> and in questioning them, they would, you would find out that it was usually about tattoos and bare midriffs that they were, or sag, saggy pants. These are the things that they thought we needed more shame about in our these society. Are in <laughs>
1: these are the things that matter in life.
0: These are the things that matter in life. And I just thought that that was like such a weird dichotomy if you have people who, whose lives are mired in shame and people who think no, we don't have enough shame in the world. And it got me thinking about why do people why do people want this and especially around these topics around that were so bodily you know bodily or relationally uh, charged because it was it, if it wasn't about tattoos and and skippy clothing that it was about uh, people who are gay who are being affectionate with their partner and in, in, in public. Oh my gosh. And so I started, re- the more I read about shame, the more aggravated I got with what I was reading because so often um, shame gets defined in totality as it's a bad thing. It's destroy. It will destroy you. It's and, it, and for many of us who feel shame, that's what it, what it feels like. I mean, the word First, another word for shame is mortification, which has the word mort from Latin in it. So it's literally death,
3: mm-hmm. metaphorically mm-hmm.
0: death. Um, mm-hmm. And and so there's an aspect of it is shame has this aspect of social death to it. But I also started really paying attention to who gets protected from being shamed and who do does not. And thinking back to these conversations of people who think we need to have more shame, it was right. about we need to control these people who we, ha- we no longer have control over we need to shame them into submission.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Shame them into a a state of being that they want, they, that that is comfortable for us. And so my my understanding of shame has evolved because I started looking at shame as if it's so harmful, then why why do we feel it? Why do we have it? Why is it part of our you know, human software? Mm-hmm. And really shame shame And you're—I don't think that the fact is that we don't—we have too much shame or not enough shame in the United States or in in the West. We don't have, and 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 specifically, you know, white, 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 the white West. uh, We don't have tools or systems for negotiating shame together in ways that aren't completely destructive, because there are cultures, there are peoples in the world. Where shame is, an, is a relational, negotiable process. There's a, a writer, a theorist named Sylvan Tompkins, who talks about shame and the need for shame in a democracy. And no one ever really talks about this when they talk about his work. But, but shame is supposed to be something that you can have in an equitable relationship because um, shame tells us about the world and our relationships with one another. It tells us how we fit in with those relationships and those that fitting in has to be like flexible. We should be able to, if we feel some shame, um, if we think that that shame is unjust, then we should be able to say so. And we don't really, you know, and then the person that we're telling that this shame is unjust, they they should be able to listen to us so we can craft newer social norms because that at its heart is what shame does. Shame helps us craft social norms. It helps us create worlds together. And we don't have that in the society. We have systems of control that try to um, that that are not flexible. And Sylvan Thompson says that's not shame; that's humiliation.
3: Hmm.
0: Um, and he makes that distinction between shame and humiliation because when okay. it becomes humiliation, we demand that people um, internalize the image that we have of them, <laughs> yeah. unless yeah. they meet, you know, these goals that you know the goal, and these goals whose goalposts always move. Um, really when we see it so so shame to me is is a slippery thing i can think of moments in my life where i've had moments of shame that were good in that not that they weren't painful but they helped me see how i was um aligned in my thinking or my values with the things that with white supremacy with with um uh uh with patriarchy and to be able to have that moment and think, I am so ashamed of this, that I make these assumptions, then I have to come back and say, how did, I, how did this happen? How did, I get, how did this get implanted in me and how can I do differently? Where can I be in relationship with others so that I will do differently and understand the world in new ways? Um, to be able to shift this and change this. And so I, I think that those are valuable. And Melissa Harris Perry, uh, she has a book called Sister Citizen where she talks about mm-hmm. shame. And she talks about, she lists this from another writer, um, and I can't remember where she she got this from, but she disguised the difference between like integrative, reintegrative shame, I think that's what she calls it, and then like a punishing shame. And so the example of this reintegrative shame is the look that, you know, when you're at church and you're acting up and your grandmother gives you this like withering look. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to get you to <laughs> behave. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, she she calls that a positive example of shame because it's your grandmother telling you you are not behaving appropriately. You are not being the, the appropriate person for this setting. But you know that your grandmother loves you. I mean, this works if your grandmother loves you. Yeah. Um, she's loves you unconditionally. She's not going to like boot you out of the family because you acted up in church. Um, All right. And so it's this flexible relational relying that's that's rooted in this love and this acceptance. Um, But we don't have that in the United States. We have a system of shame that says we will shame you until you behave the way that we want you to. You don't get our love until you get, you act the same, act the same way, or you are the right kind of person.
2: Yuki, that makes me think back to some of your earlier comments about Trump and his seeming shamelessness. And I've had a very rudimentary theory, and you feel free to say that it's a bad theory because it may not be true or it might be more complex than what I'm thinking. But I've often thought that a lot of the conservative, I mean, back in 2015, 2016, there was genuine surprise, even amongst some conservative political leaders that primary voters were opting for Trump you know, like that as the as the Republican primary played out in 2015, 2016, there's a lot of surprise and there was the never Trump movement within the Republican party. And there were lots of people who were put off by him until it became clear that he was as popular as he was. And he won the nomination. And even then after that, but the, the question was always, what is it about this guy about Trump that attracts uh, the conservative voters to him? And even more this time around numerically than the first time. And my theory is this, is that, Conservative voters in the United States have been told through Fox News, um, their perception of the liberal academy and liberal Hollywood, all these things, that they should be ashamed of the values that they hold related to race, related to gender, related to sexuality, um, and that there is that that's what they are they're being told that they are being shamed for being that way which i think is a mm-hmm. perhaps dubious claim that's what they're being told through the media outlets that they consume and then trump comes along and says you don't have to be ashamed of that anymore and i am not i will say whatever i think i will embody and, and and put forth the racist and the sexist and the homophobic remarks and the xenophobic things that, and, and and anti-immigration Uh, stereotype all of these things i will from day one that he descends down that elevator like he starts off that way is there is is there some sense that maybe that's that shame is playing a role in their attraction to him because he's saying that they don't they also don't have to be ashamed anymore because he's not either
0: oh yeah definitely because like i said shame is about calibrating social norms okay and there should be some flexibility there should be some like ability to have these um negotiations between these different groups because i mean we get the sense that it's conservatives versus liberals about the future of our country I mean, literal marvel civil war happening right now <laughs>
3: um over values <laughs> right right
0: right and um it is it is interesting to me that we can't have this conversation of saying either saying we have different values or that uh, we have different values, but where do we come together? Um, I mean, that's like the big liberal project right now is how can we get together with those <laughs> on the right and I find common ground with them. Um, and because we have this understanding of shame that makes it so deadly, um, and, I, and I think this uh, about this a lot, um, especially in the terms of white supremacy, how white supremacists are never going to give ground about Um, how we treat, how they treat people of color, because they just assume that people of color are gonna treat them in that same way if the tables were turned. And I think about this a lot of, of because uh, we have systems in place where shame is used in order to control behavior. Um, Shamed people are not appropriate people. They're not protected people. They're not secure people. Um, If you are a shamed person, you do not receive the love and care of your community. And so to admit shame is to believe that you will not be loved in that same way. And so, um, and so, yeah, We sh- instead of... I'm not gonna say that liberals aren't great at shaming because they are, we are. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, there's this difference between, I will shame and humiliate you and tell you, I will try to make you feel ashamed versus, I saw somebody else living in a different way for me, and i it makes me feel shame about my ways of, of living or my ways of doing. I mean, the moments where I feel shame that I talked about that were good for me, that's what happened to me. Right. Um, and what would it be like if you could just like lean into that instead of saying, no, I will not feel that way. How dare you make me feel ashamed? How dare you make me into a shamed person? Right, right And right, so right. Trump, part of the work that I did, part of the political theological work that I did was everyone looks at shame and says uh, the, the opposite of shame is, 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 uh, vulnerability, the Brene Brown idea of vulnerability. Um, but I looked at authority and how authority, um, is a key part in how we understand like who is shameable and who isn't, um, what should cause shame and what isn't. And so Trump was that authoritative voice of saying not just saying you should be ashamed this way and you, and, or not, but just saying of the way that he would say, uh, you don't have to feel ashamed because here, look, do what I do, you know, be, be part of my community. And so he's that authoritative voice that decides what is shameful and what isn't. And of course he's reacting out of shame all the time. (laughs) I mean, everything that he does is a a big reaction out of shame, but he doesn't say that and he does, I don't think he knows that really right um but but yeah he's he's so defensive against the shame and his followers are defending against shame and it's not that the shame doesn't i mean like shame is painful shame is hard but you know painful and hard things sometimes can be um you know we get valuable lessons from them when we choose to engage them when we can choose to engage them
2: um jamie i want to bring you in here one of the one of the uh, targets of a lot of conservative shaming over the last several weeks, and we could say decades and centuries, <laughs> um, unfortunately, has been directed toward. More recently, are directed toward the uh, the transgender community in the United States and our gender nonconforming friends, our nonbinary friends, etc. Um, could you walk us through a little bit of what's been happening there? There have been several transgender, anti-transgender bills that have been floated out in about seven different states. And you had um, shared something off the recording with us uh, a few days ago about Marjorie Taylor green and something that the um, infamous uh, representative from the state of Georgia, what's going on with some of that. And uh, by all means, feel free to share a bit about what Marjorie Taylor green was up to as well that day. Well, yeah,
1: because I think they are both related, right? Because right, there have been a number of, proposed anti-trans pieces of legislation from uh, from sort of sports, from participations in sports to just their presence, right? Uh, And this was countered in some way by the push by Democrats in the House to move forward a new equal rights amendment that would include members of the LGBTQIA plus communities. Uh, and, and so Representative Newman from Illinois had put up a, a trans flag in front of her office, right? And her office happens to be right across the the hallway from Marjorie Taylor Greene's. Um, and she did so for two reasons one because there was a sequel a rights amendment moving through congress and she wanted to show her support for it but also her daughter is transgender and so okay. uh, so so it, she wanted to both show her support for the community but also her support for her daughter um, marjorie taylor green of course never to be outdone it, it had a sign made and 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 sort of stuck to her wall immediately facing the the other Congresswoman's door, uh, saying there are two genders, male and female trust the science. We we could spend an hour picking apart that sign because absolutely none of it is, true. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. which, <laughs> which is probably not the point. Uh, <laughs> but, but right, so I was, I was struck by Yuki's conversation about shame, because that's, I mean, a lot of it's embedded in that, right? That that these people are, are different, and they're supposed to feel shame about the way that they are and the way they interact with the world and the way they present themselves. And when they don't, somebody has to tell them they should, right? So Margie Taylor Green is the guardian of the galaxy right now, who's telling them exactly where they fall on the gender spectrum in her world and, and where they fall in the scientific world. And of course it's all nonsense, but she speaks with as big a voice in the Republican party as anybody at this point, I would think maybe short of Donald Trump. Uh, and so it really is a question and I'm not aware of any members of the, the Republican party who, who decried this, who said this was wrong. It was, it was at a minimum, it was, it was incredibly mean spirited. And, Mm -hmm. and I guess I, 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 there's just this bifurcation in the parties and and I hear Yuki's critique of Joe Biden and I make those same critiques often but at the same time, there is a party that is standing for out and outright hate right now and and part of pardon of me feels like we need to be much more proactive in lifting that piece up uh, because it will then open up space for the other party to um to be much more proactive in in injustice work in love work and acceptance work so that, that's sort of where i what i thought about when she was talking about shame was just this notion of of, of feeling shame and 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 the societal um, society putting shame on a person or a class of people or a community of people and and when they don't know they're supposed to feel shame society does everything they can to push back against that so that's i appreciated her work on that and and i think it's Critically important right now, especially for these communities that have been so maligned, uh, that have what must look like a little bit of a ray of hope right now. So I, yeah, I appreciate that though.
2: Yuki, our time in this segment is winding down quickly. Do you have a a closing thought or a last good word you'd like to share with us about um, about some of this?
0: I I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier about theology and how theology is about world building. Shame is, plays into that as well, um, because it really is, you know, when we think about who's been protected from shame and who isn't, and the links that we go to to make sure that we aren't protected from shame, literally to the point, as, as Jamie was saying, that we will, we will harm and kill people in order to make sure they stay in that status or in that community. We will not let it go. Um, the thing that surprised me about my work in shame was how um, useful a tool shame could be for me in identifying those places where um, change is possible. Um, because when we're doubling down on, when folks are doubling down on that shame, it means that change is happening. It means that, yes. that people are not um, acting the way that they're supposed to be acting according to the, old, the world that, that they know. And so for me, um, when I experience shame or when I'm experiencing shaming, I'm like now attentive to where's the, where's the change happening? Where can I, and then where can I put my power? Where can I add my power to the fight where the change for the world that we are trying to create is possible? So that's, that's where shame has been helpful for me. And as, you know, as a progressive, um, uh, we, 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 you know, we have to be aware of of the ways in which that we are replicating these harmful behaviors ourselves. And so for me, it's learning how to use shame in this way, so that we can be, uh, we can do better. We know Mm -hmm. better, we do better, as Maya Angelou says. So I'm not, I'm not afraid of shame. It's a gift for me. I've had, you know, years of therapy and 11 years of doctoral <laughs> work to be able to get to this point. But yeah, I would say that's the thing is that, is that, you know, in shame, it's, if there are the signs of signs and seeds of relationships and, and new worlds being born. So where can we go? Go into that and find it.
2: Jamie, Yuki, it's now time for our front porch musings, or a time when we share something that has touched our hearts or that we have found interesting that may not be national headline news. So y'all, imagine that y'all have just returned from the, the, the Capitol building, and you have absconded with Marjorie Taylor Greene's sign that she had made, and you are back at home on your porch and you're musing about the world. Uh, Jamie, what are you musing about today?
1: Mark, it's interesting that uh, we've had a couple now references to the Marvel Universe uh, on this show. I, I have been—I wanted to lift up the show, *WandaVision*. I've been watching it uh, all season long. My my son, I should say, my oldest son, got me into it. He is w- way into Marvel, uh, and I am not. I in fact know almost nothing about it. And so he he asked me to watch it with him, and and since that time, I've been um, moving through the timeline of movies, uh, and the whole the whole story is is well woven both the both the, the the actual WandaVision show but also just the Marvel universe in general and i i am, i've been amazed at sort of the the intricacies of the the detail of the work of it so i i looked up the show cuz it really is a quite good show. it started off as just a very quirky watch and by the time we're now to the the second to last episode before the season ends and m- my son and my wife and I all sit there enthralled by it every week. So I lift that show up and it's uh, really just the whole Marvel universe. It's been a lot of fun.
2: Wonderful. Wonderful. You have there been some things in pop culture going on lately that you've been enjoying or anything at all that you want to share?
0: It's funny that that this is where we're going because so I'm an old school comic book nerd. I mean, I started reading comic books when I was in high school, Um, big X-Men fan didn't get so much into the Marvel verse or the the Avengers area, but I got, I knew enough. Um, And because of the doctoral program, I had to give it up because who's got time to read, you know, nine (laughs) thousand, who's got time to keep it that canon in your head when you've got the theological canon (laughs) also. And I just recently started, um, I just recently started watching the Marvel movie. So we're doing it in release order um and i and part of it was because we saw WandaVision and we started watching WandaVision and it's really oh. funny cuz uh, a friend of mine had posted on Facebook this little meme and it had a picture of Wanda looking, you know, cross in her in her costume and, the, and next to it it says what i feel like when i go to therapy something like that and then below it it had her looking happy and then it said um holding an entire people hostage in order to avoid your trauma and and uh avoid your trauma and uh live out your fantasies of a sitcom reality and i looked at it and i thought and i went oh i thought this was a commentary on right-wing politics but it's just something up WandaVision. <laughs> but now i'm going what if Wandavision is just a commentary on politics
2: <laughs> what a happy parallel
0: <laughs> yeah but yeah, I have, yeah WandaVision, that's, one event, and that's been one of the the key like, um, enjoyments for me as well as getting into... Oh, I hated that I had to get Disney Plus for all these shows that I'm watching on Disney Plus. But man, WandaVision <laughs> and The Mandalorian. Oh my oh gosh, gosh, yes. Oh my
3: gosh.
1: Yeah,
2: we, we love The Mandalorian around here. We sure do. Yeah, uh, here as well. Speaking of Star Wars, I'll use that to pivot over to my musing, which is Star Wars related. Yeah. Um, Speaking of the canon, also earlier used that word, Yuki. Um, uh, I've shared on the show, I think, over the past couple of months that I've gone back and have watched. I did. I never really got into the um, the three Star Wars movies that came out in the late '90s, early 2000s. So like the one, two, and three, not in terms of release, but yeah, those rewatched. Those got a little more into the story. Mandalorian helped kind of you know get those engines going again. And then started watching uh, Clone Wars, the animated show, which I've enjoyed more than I thought I would, and that has spun out into me wanting to uh, start to read some of the Star Wars novels. And apparently, in Star Wars fandom, there is like canon—not there are canon novels, and there are those that are not. And I don't know which ones I'm reading, but I've picked ones it's uh it's a lovely thing you can find like where the books fit chronologically into the larger story the movie the film stories and so i've picked a couple that were like what was darth vader doing before a new hope and after or revenge of the sith and after he you know, gets reconstituted by by darth uh, whatever by the emperor and uh, there's a book out there about that. And I'm like, who knew? Star Wars fans knew. And I'm like, that's wonderful. Or what was Obi-Wan Kenobi doing like after Revenge of the Sith and before so, and I just finished. I've been reading some of those books. It's been lovely. I've gone back and i picked a couple that um, that are, are interesting to me. And uh, I, I didn't know all that was out there, but it's been a happy, nerdy world to be able to dive into and to read about and to see what others are thinking or was, 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 have been happening in the Star Wars universe during that time. So... I love it. It's a great. It's a great thing.
0: Oh, my partner read the the Thrawn novels, and so when Thrawn's name came up in Mandalorian, he was like, <laughs> 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 because they, because they threw out that canon, right? And and so we didn't think, oh, they're gonna bring back some of the novels. Right, so. right, 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 right.
2: Those are uh, those are uh, hopefully coming up soon. The Thrawn uh, series too. soon. yeah. All right, good people. That's going to wrap us up for today. Yuki, again, it's been such a joy to have you here. Thank you, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for inviting me. I mean, it's, just, it's a pleasure to see you all anyway, um, but just it was a fun conversation, and so it, it was a wonderful way to spend the morning.
2: Wonderful. Jamie, um, thank you, as always, for your time. Mark, I want
1: to thank you for uh, showing all our audience that we are, in fact, nerds and geeks at the same time.
2: Oh, man, if they didn't know yet, they'll know after today. Yeah. (laughs) So speaking of you listeners, if you're listening along, uh, thank you for joining us. We do appreciate you as well. Please hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening and leave a five-star ranking, if you should, so choose. And remember that you can find all of our written work on Facebook, Twitter, and at ProgressiveSouthernTheologians.com. Listeners, y'all take care. Jamie and Yuki, you both take care, and we'll be back with you all next week.